Right, welcome everybody. Um, am I close enough to the mic? Oh, that's yeah. a, a small enough room that if I step away you'll probably still be able to hear me. <laughs> welcome to our seminar with Release International. Um, the theme for our seminar is, um, let me check it, I get it right, Father, forgive them, praying for the persecutors of Christians in East Asia. Um, my name is Sarah Shearer and I am one of the Board of Trustees of Release International. And um, we're very fortunate to have um, travel people to come and speak to us from our valued partners um, who work specifically in the East Africa region, uh, East Asia region. Sorry, I'm all over the place today. Um, before we get going, let's start with prayer. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here today in freedom and peace. We do not take that for granted. We are aware that many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world do not share the same privilege that we do. And yet we also understand that freedom in Christ is the highest form of freedom possible. And in that sense, we are united together with them. May our time together this morning both inform and move us to understand more of you and also the responsibilities we have in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, uh, to just introduce you briefly um, to our speakers this morning, um, we have um, Bob Fu here, who's speaking to us about China. Uh, we have um, Eric Foley, who's um, travelled with his wife, Dr Foley, who's also with us, um, who both work um, uh, supporting persecuted Christians in North Korea. Um, we have Asif Mol, who will be speaking to us about other areas of East Asia. Um, but before we get stuck in, we will have a talk from um, Kenneth Harrod, who is our Head of Content and Theology at Release International, and he'll be talking about um, the theory of freedom as the forgiveness and persecution, but from a biblical and theological perspective. So over to you, Kenneth. Thanks so much, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Um, yes, just a few minutes uh, to kick off this morning, um, looking at uh, some words of scripture. In a moment, I'm going to be reading, um, and the words will come up on the screen, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, but let's, let's pray as we asked God to speak to us this morning. Father God, we thank you for this time together, and we ask now that as we just spend a few moments in your word, that by your spirit, you will speak into our minds, our hearts, and our wills, and give us grace, Lord, to respond according to your will and purpose, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so reading from... Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Role models, that's something people talk a lot about, isn't it, nowadays? Um, perhaps a celebrity, or somebody who is deemed to have been successful in the eyes of the world, will perhaps be interviewed, and they'll be asked, so who was your role model? Well, for us as Christians, who is our role model? Ultimately, it's the Lord God himself, isn't it? The Apostle Paul said, be imitators of God. And I think that thought lay behind those verses that I just read to you. 
from Matthew chapter 5. Of course, it's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that's not addressed to the world. It's not an evangelistic address. It's a sermon addressed to those who profess to be the followers of Jesus Christ. And here in this part of his sermon, Jesus addresses the attitude or how we should act towards our enemies. And in particular, toward those who would persecute us for being Jesus' followers. So he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, the Old Testament law certainly commanded the loving of our neighbours. It didn't permit or even imply that that means we can therefore hate our enemies. That was a, a perversion, a misuse, if you like, of God's word by the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus goes on in the next verse, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And those are challenging words, aren't they? They really are challenging words to us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we might ask, to what end? What's the purpose? Why should Christians do that? Well, in your uh, goodie bag that you had today inside the Release International magazine, there's this little booklet that we've produced uh, for today uh, on this theme. And one of the passages that we touch on uh, in that uh, booklet comes in Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is addressing this very same issue. Uh, And Paul writes in verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to heap burning coals on the heads of our enemies or our persecutors? Well, I guess it could mean uh, one or possibly both of, of two things. It might mean that our love, the love we show towards them, embarrasses them enough, perhaps even shames them enough, that they might stop persecuting us. Or even at a deeper level, and by the grace of God, showing love to our enemies might move them to repentance and even cause them to seek after and to embrace Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. Showing that kind of love toward enemies could produce either of those responses. But here's the thing. There's no guarantee, is there? There's no guarantee that it will do either. There's no guarantee that that loving, praying for, forgiving your persecutors will ease the persecution, let alone bring the persecutors to faith in Christ. Christians who suffer persecution may respond to the world's hatred with a godly love and then find that the hatred continues. Or even intensifies. And yet the Christian is challenged to do that and to go on doing that. Why? Well, as Jesus says in the next verse, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Notice, not so that you may become sons of the heavenly Father. It's not that, uh, that we can earn this, as it were, by our, by our attitude but rather that we demonstrate and we demonstrate to the world that we are truly sons of our Heavenly Father. God, as as the Apostle Paul reminds us, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in fact, while we were the enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself 
through the atoning death of his son. And the Christian is called to reflect that attitude of God to the world, including to our enemies. As as, uh, Jesus goes on to say, uh, loving those who love us requires nothing special, does it? Nothing distinctive of the Christian. But loving those who would persecute us for the name of Christ, that requires the grace of God. The grace that God gives to those whom he chooses, those, those whom he has called to himself in his son Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus ends this little part of his sermon, uh, be you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, being like our father, being conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal of every Christian, isn't it? And it's part of our witness to the world, however the world may then respond. On one occasion, the Apostle Paul, and I love this illustration, likened gospel preaching to smells, to aromas. Now, there are some smells, aren't there, that can be pleasant, some that can be unpleasant. Most people love the smell of freshly brewed coffee. Probably most people don't like the smell of a sewer. Uh, And Paul says this in his second letter to the Corinthians. That's the one. For we are the aroma of Christ, he says, to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. To one with the aroma of death to death, to the other with the aroma of life to life. Yes, loving our persecutors is no guarantee that the persecution will stop, let alone that the persecutors will come to faith in Christ. But nonetheless, loving our persecutors is a vital and indeed a powerful demonstration of the reality of God's love in our own lives, the reality of God's love in the lives of his people, a love that his people know sent Jesus to die in their place. Amen. Thank you, Kenneth. That was um, quite challenging, that word that you gave us just now. Um, I'd next like to introduce um, Bob Fu to come and speak to us about China. Um, He is the founder and um, CEO of an organisation called China Aid, and they work to bring international awareness um, to some of the human rights violations and um, lack of religious freedoms that the Chinese Communist Party are imposing on the people there. Um, there's a growing population of Christians in China. There's tens of millions now. Um, now, Bob Fu is an expert in his field, so there'll be some interesting things to learn, I'm sure. Thank you, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. President Xi Jinping launched a war against Christian faith and other minority religions since he took power. The degree and the level of persecution has been reached to the worst since the Cultural Revolution 40 years ago. We're seeing for the first time since Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution, the Communist Party would order all the state-sanctioned churches have to 
put two portraits on the side of the pulpit. One is Chairman Mao's portrait, one is Chairman Xi Jinping's portrait that vividly demonstrate the current state of affairs. And Christian churches every Sunday are ordered before you sing doxology, you have to sing the Communist Party's national anthem. All of a sudden, the cross on the roof top of the church building is declared the enemy of the state. Thousands of church uh, crosses were forcefully demolished, destroyed, and even burned. We have pastors like Pastor Wang Yi received nine years imprisonment for one sermon on a Sunday based on the Gospel of John 3.16, ask President Xi to repent and offering the free grace of salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called subversion of state power, nine years imprisonment. You're punished for doing charitable work as Chinese-American pastor John Tao, who was sentenced to seven years imprisonment for setting up 12, uh, 16 Christian schools in the Burma-China border areas for the war-torn Kachin minorities for 2,000 children, seven years imprisonment. I want to read a story, really I just uh, received from one of the a young seminary students from the Early Rain Covenant Church where the pastor, Pastor Wang Yi, received that nine-year sentence. The story happened in an interrogation room in a police station. So this brother recorded that conversation and after he went through, here it is, a conversation between him and the interrogator. I've read the Bible. I know there are immersion, sprinkling, and pouring. Which one do you uphold? I said, immersion. He said, you understand the Bible. I said, I've read the Bible several times, but I don't understand all in it. He thought this conversation between this young seminary student of 20, of about in his 20s, is uh, maybe like a Sunday school classroom conversation. But this actually happened between him and a Chinese Communist Party's chief police interrogator with ID number 008075. Brother Song Angguang, his first name literally means grace and light. He was completely chained with handcuffs in that interrogation room, in that police station, among with other over 200 fellow Christians from the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, Sichuan province. He was detained and taken. The church was attacked for organizing a special prayer meeting that day for the 10th anniversary of that ugly major earthquake that cost over 90,000 lives. 
Many were children who died in their classroom due to what's known as tofu construction buildings because of corruption. The interrogation continued. Who created you? My parents gave birth to me. He slapped me on the face and said, God created you. He slapped me harder another time. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, what's next? I answered, turn to them the other also. He slapped me again. What book said this? Book of Matthew. I told him, he slapped me once again. What chapter? I said the fifth. He slapped me four times in a row and told and said the book of Matthew, New Testament, the sixth chapter, verse 38 to 42. He then said, I see anger in your eyes. Christ thought, taught you to love me. You should heap burning coals on my head. Romans 12, 20, you should move me with your love. He slapped me once more. On which day did God create human? I answered, on the sixth day. He slapped me two more times. On the sixth day, with the dirt. He said, can a person give birth alone? I said, no. He slapped me four times more. God created woman. They ate the forbidden fruit and gave birth to humans. You should love me. The interrogator cuffed my face smiling, then repeated, Christ taught you to love me. You shouldn't put me on fire with your anger. You should move me with your love. He slapped me four more times. My face was numb. He asked, which book is Exodus? I answered the second chapter of Old Testament. Who wrote it? Moses. What's it about? Moses left Egypt with the people of Israel. There are much more. He slapped me ten more times in a row. My face was numb, but the pain was piercing. They are Hebrews, the people of Israel. Moses left Egypt with them and entered Canaan. The Pharaoh didn't let them, so God punished the Egyptians with ten plagues. The first was mild and the second was harsh. In the tenth plague, the Pharaoh's eldest son died. That's how they left Egypt. Then he cursed me. He said, I've read the Bible also. The police kept taking the record. My face swelled up. My cheeks, my cheeks hurt when I chewed. Brother Song, the grace and light, that was his name, was slapped over 30 times by that police officer 008075. Ironically, as you can tell, abusers now are more familiar with the even scripture and demanded the scripture love when the torturers is torturing the Christian brother Song. It seems a lot of things changed in China, a lot of more skyscrapers, more speed trains, and even the skills of the interrogators is improved. I guess they are mandated maybe to memorize more scriptures now. I remembered in 1996 when my interrogator 
smoking at my eyes in the room. And quoting Romans 13, claims, They are the authorities above to whom I should submit by demanding me to betray my Christian brothers and sisters in our house church. But this may signify another wave of spiritual revival in China. Perhaps, as Kenneth just mentioned, it may not lead all the persecutors to Christ. It may not even get a feedback of kind of a loving by your interrogator. But because the way those brothers and sisters responded to their persecution, it is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transformed China. Brother Song mentioned he used the police ID number instead of his name by purposely omitting that officer's name that he know in order to avoid some Christian revenge out of flesh. After reading his account, it is like what his name means, grace, gracious light. Many persecuted Christians like Brother Song understand practically, practically, what this means, what Apostle John wrote, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Brother Son said after he was severely beaten, he had a wave of unspeakable peace resembling like a flowing river. This is what he wrote. At this moment, I began to understand the heart of Jesus Christ. I began to understand God. Before getting into police van, I encouraged the brothers and sisters, we are more powerful inside than we are outside. God is with you. After arriving at the police station, I was dragged to the interrogation chamber, locked on the cold iron tiger chair. The room appeared dull and bleak, but God gave me hope, endowing me with the spirit to spread the gospel. I spread the gospel to the four police officers in the interrogation chambers and sharing my testimony with them. That's the amazing grace. He said, hatred did not overtake me for even a second. At that moment, I was certain that my Savior existed. He is more of the Lord and God in times of uh, trials. He is the only one I can rely on. God never deserts me. I think that's the transforming power of the gospel through which the love of Christ and forgiveness had been transforming China since the communists took power. In 1949, there was less than one million Christians after one half centuries missionary work in China. But today, after the nonstop persecution, 
torture, and even now pastors, at least the three dozens of pastors, are waiting for trials, for simply putting an offering and tithing box in the middle of their congregation. That's called business fraud, waiting for trial, and many estimated the number at least have already reached to over a hundred to 130 million Christians in China now. May God get the, all the glory. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bobby. That was a real encouragement, and especially to us as we might write letters to prisoners of faith in China, to know that the authorities are reading our letters, even if they don't get to the prisoners, and it's through us writing scripture and encouragement that the word of God is getting to the Chinese, and so I think that's a real encouragement to us and our role in all of this. Um, next, I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Eric Foley. He is CEO and founder of um, Voice of the Martyrs Career, along with his wife. They've been working there 20 years, um, being the voice um, for the voices in Korea. Good morning, everyone. My wife and I are the co-founders of Voice of the Martyrs Korea, and what that means is my wife does all the work and I talk about it, so <laughs> I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you this morning on the subject of forgiveness, specifically as it relates to North Korean Christians. We found that there's much we can learn from them that has transformed our own understanding of forgiveness in the Christian life. The most basic truth about Christian forgiveness is, is that God does not simply call us to offer persecutors our own forgiveness. He calls on us to offer our persecutors his forgiveness. Because the gospel message is at root Christ's proclamation, your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven in the, the blood of the cross and, 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 and ratified in his resurrection from the dead. And so what enables us to understand the presence of forgiveness in a country like North Korea, which is known as perhaps the worst persecutor in human history, is the continuation of the proclamation of the gospel message of the forgiveness of Christ to all people in North Korea. In other words, there's more happening here than occasional anecdotes of forgiveness of, of Christians who have been harmed. In any country, it is the presence of the faithful preaching of the gospel that shows that Christ's forgiveness is at work. Because we know from the scripture that that, that proclamation, your sins are forgiven, is received by us in faith. The faith comes from the hearing of the gospel and the hearing of the gospel comes from the word of God. And so what we wanna ask then is the question, how do we find the forgiveness of God in a country? And what I'm saying to you is, is that it comes not from simply hearing a story or two. It comes from realizing that even in a country like North Korea that does everything that it can to extinguish the proclamation of the gospel through the burning of Bibles, the desecration of church buildings, the imprisonment of people, even who have association with missionaries, that that proclamation of the gospel not only continues, but it increases on a daily basis. So if I were to ask you the question, where is the church growing faster today, in North Korea or in the UK? The answer would be in North Korea. If I were to ask you the question, where is the church growing faster today in North Korea or in South Korea, where we have 10 of the 11 largest churches in the world, the answer would be in North Korea. And so that tells us that God is present forgiving the persecutors in North Korea. 
When my wife and I started Voice of the Martyrs Korea 20 years ago, and we began to talk with persecuted Christians in North Korea, and we asked them, what can we do in order to be able to, to assist you in this work? Um, I asked them this question. I said, how can we pray for you? Uh, and the North Korean brother, who we were meeting on the China side of the North Korean-China border, and uh, the North Korean brother said, you pray for us, we pray for you. And I thought there must be some mistranslation because we're from America, the land of the free and the home of the very rich Christians. And I wanted to say to the brother, what do you need? Because whatever you need, I can get it for you. I mean, that was my job, was having relationships with different Christian ministries and denominations and having consulted with them for most of my adult life. And so I thought, what do you need? Do you need medicine? Do you need, do you, do you need money? Do you need to escape so you can come to South Korea and be rich and free like us? And the Christian brother from North Korea just smiled in a kind of a pitiful way at me and he said, yes. He said, that's the problem with you American and South Korean Christians. You have so much. You have so much money and so much freedom that you often end up putting your trust in your money and your freedom. He said, we North Korean Christians, we have neither money nor freedom. We have only Christ and we have found that he is sufficient. This changed the trajectory of our ministry. We began to think differently because the way that we had understood ministry was that ministry was the use of money and freedom to be able to accomplish great things in Jesus' name. That's how we had practiced it in my wife's and my life up until that point. But North Korean Christians understand ministry to simply be the complete dependence upon God in every circumstance. And so it is to say that their only hope is God. And the only hope that they have in God is not a hope of giving things to their persecutors, even their own personal forgiveness. All that they have to give is the forgiveness that they themselves have received from Christ, and they are authorized to give that forgiveness through the proclamation of the gospel message. So how is the gospel message doing in North Korea today? In other words, what, what is it that the North Korean underground church is proclaiming? Are they continuing to speak? Well, I would venture this, and I would like to say this in the context of this parliamentary uh, prayer gathering, there is a sense today in which the best thing that Christians believe they can do in free countries is to help Christians in closed countries to escape so that they can enjoy the same level of freedom and, 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 and practice of faith as we do. We recognize this as a, as a great good and something that um, we all ought to treasure. But in fact, my underground North Korean Christian friend indicated to me that freedom and money are good when you have them, but no great loss when you don't. Because what the Christian relies upon is the presence of Christ alone. It's the, the absolute reliance upon Christ uh, that, that, that is what characterizes the Christian. And so for the last 20 years, as we've worked with Christians in North Korea, we have found that rather than simply being a point of receiving things from us, they are a point of giving. And what is it that they're giving? They have really nothing to give by way of medicine or money or things like that. But what they give is forgiveness through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. The fact that they continue to preach not their own forgiveness, but Christ's forgiveness, is how we know that Christ continues to love those who persecute Christians in North Korea. If Christians are not present in a country because we Christians in free countries who have money and freedom continue to believe that it is our responsibility to help them evacuate so they can come to places like the UK and practice faith freely, then the gospel falls silent. And if the gospel falls silent, 
then the forgiveness of Christ falls silent and persecutors are not forgiven. So in North Korea, Christians defect at a lower rate than other social groups. They leave the country less often than other demographic groups of people. It's because they understand that their presence in North Korea serves a purpose. They don't leave because they're not simply seeking to practice their own faith personally in, 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 in peace and, 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 and in safety. They have been entrusted with the forgiveness of Christ and they will offer it under every circumstance. This is why among the estimate, which is true of most groups, there's some groups that will estimate more, but I think a reliable estimate of the number of Christians in North Korea is about 100,000, 30,000 of whom are in concentration camps, that the 30,000 who are in concentration camps prepared in order to get there. That is to say that as we work with North Korean Christians, they tell us over and over again that when you are a Christian, you come to receive that faith, you know that your faith will likely lead you to a concentration camp, and that makes sense because the message that you have of forgiveness is going to be rejected by most of the people to whom you share it. And so you should prepare to spend the rest of your life in a concentration camp, however long or however short it may be. In North Korea today, more people are reading the Bible than at any other point in history. When in 2000, my wife and I started Voice of the Martyrs Korea, uh, the North Korean Human Rights Database, an independent uh, secular organization that does a longitudinal study into various aspects of North Korean life, through their first survey in 2000 found that essentially for all practical purposes, 0% of North Koreans had ever seen a Bible with their own eyes. In their most recent uh, survey data, which is the, the year ending in 2020, so that came out in December, uh, or yeah, so, so it came out in December 2022. Um, they found that about 8% of North Koreans have now seen a Bible with their own eyes, which in a country of um, 20 million people indicates that nearly 2 million have now heard the word of Christ's forgiveness that says your sins are forgiven. And so we know Christ loves the persecutors of North Korea. If he did not, the Christians would simply be removed. When we, in our humanitarian, in my view, misplaced humanitarian goodness, treasure freedom and financial resources above the proclamation of Christ's forgiveness, we will elevate the safety of Christ's saints above the message of Christ's forgiveness. When we rightly value the message of Christ's forgiveness, then we will offer it even unto our death, even planning for the rest of our life to be spent in a concentration camp. The fact that more North Koreans are reading the Bible than at any other point in history is a demonstration of God's love for North Korea. The, the North Korean Christians who remain in North Korea remain in North Korea because they have been given the assignment by the Lord Jesus to proclaim not their own forgiveness, but his. In proclaiming his forgiveness, which comes through the word of God, that forgiveness continues to spread in North Korea. Persecution hasn't lessened to any degree since we began in the year 2000, but the grace of God continues to triumph over persecution. That is not evidence simply in a one or two anecdotes about forgiveness, because ultimately the forgiveness sources with the Lord Jesus himself. I am concerned when the conversations that happen in Parliament relate only to questions of human religious freedom and prosperity, that is to say, 
living a life uh, free of, 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 of uh, impediments to, to the practice of our religious faith because it misunderstands that the core purpose of our life as Christians is to go to our persecutors and offer them the forgiveness of Christ. So we remain honored to stand with persecuted North Korean Christians, not to help them escape the country, not to experience what we experience as South Korean or American Christians, but so that we can remember what it is that they know but we have forgotten. That the Christian life is not about the personal practice of our faith, but is rather about the offering of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. Persecution is not the world on the offensive, it is, however, the world on the defensive because the world continues to resist the word of God. Christ says, as he's speaking to Paul, that this resistance is ultimately futile. It will end. And so we continue to press the issue. It is not the world that is on the advance or the attack. It is the church. And what we are on the advance and the attack with is the forgiveness, not of our own selves, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that forgiveness that comes from Christ continues to be rejected by the world such that that rejection takes the form of persecution. But the persecution is always overcome because those who have been given the task of proclaiming the message continue to stay where they have been called and they live it out. So I'm so thankful. I, you know, we've traveled now to more than 40 countries around the world and people say to me, oh, I'm praying for the gospel to get into North Korea. And I say, really? I'm praying for it to get back out. The North Korean church is doing just fine, thank you. In fact, they like me to tell you they're praying for you. Because unlike us, they don't put their trust in their money and their freedom. They don't privilege their continuation of their own lives and safety. They have been given the task of offering to their hostile persecutors the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, and they will stay at post until he returns. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ray. That was incredibly encouraging. Um, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Asif Moll, who's going to speak to us um, about other areas of East Asia. Um, he's an expert in Islam and particularly supports uh, Christians that are in Islamic context. So, you can speak. It's a very good morning, everyone. It's a very vast area that I I'm asked to speak on, so I will obviously be very selective. Uh, Southeast Asia, I will not be talking about Burma or Thailand or Vietnam or Cambodia. I'll be mainly focusing on uh, the Muslim majority part of Southeast Asia, uh, namely uh, the Brunei, uh, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, and southern part of Philippines, and to some degree, Indonesia. Uh, there are three, four issues that are really um, uh, need our attention. Uh, one of them, I believe, has not been highlighted uh, as much as it should have been highlighted, is the issue of statelessness. Uh, there are people, uh, can you imagine 15% of the population of Brunei, which, who are living there for like generations, uh, they uh, don't have been given citizenship. Uh, and I, I visited them, I visited Brunei multiple times, and I've met them, and they, uh, they are heartbroken. I mean, imagine, I mean, we, we live in Britain. Imagine if you are an indigenous British person living here for five, six generations, 
but still you are not given a British citizenship, which means when it comes to jobs, in the British government jobs, uh, you are not welcome. Uh, when you retire uh, eventually and you want pension, uh, nothing is granted to you. So that's the kind of life. If you need to travel, uh, then you don't have a passport. Uh, and so those, and, and particularly those who are Christians are, are, uh, are particularly dealt in that way. Yeah, I, I, I feel that it's sort of like a pressure, uh, socioeconomic pressure being put on them, uh, forcing them that if you want all of these things, they can be given unto you, but you have to then convert to Islam. And some of them, uh, unfortunately, succumb to that pressure. Uh, but those who are still, can, can you imagine that they would rather face all those hardships, hardships but continue to follow Jesus uh, are doing so despite all that uh, that's going on. But I think that we as the brothers and sisters, uh, we need to be their wise. We need to raise that issue uh, to make sure that they eventually get the uh, citizenship. Um, uh, the, I, I, I think that the last numbers that I was looking at are that um, uh, uh, by... Um, by a project called Borchen Project, and they put the numbers of stateless people in uh, Brunei at uh, 20,524, and the local population is obviously very small and makes up uh, closer to 15% of the local population, and that's not exclusively the case with the Brunei. In uh, Malaysia has the same problem. Malaysia has also a substantial number of people, uh, indigenous people who are uh, Bhumiputras or the, or the uh, sons of the soil as they call it in the local language and they also if uh, especially those who are Christians are not given citizenship uh, it, it's, it's kind of surprising for us in this part of the world uh, I mean I was born and raised in Pakistan I came to this country uh, a while ago and I came to study then I found a job and my I was considered a taxpayer and on the basis of being taxpayer I was given permanent residency and that led to a British citizenship, and uh, that was a long time ago now. And for me also, feeling that somebody else can be born and raised and living for five, six generations in a country and is denied citizenship. As a matter of fact, if you know the Malaysian situation, the eastern side of the Malaysia, which is the Sarawak and Sabah provinces, uh, they traditionally have been majority Christian. And they are, are trying to aggressively trying to Islamize those, both those, those areas and a lot of uh, Chinese and Filipino and other uh, Muslims who, or Indonesians who came to uh, Sabah, the moment the population of uh, Muslims was closer to 40%, uh, they declared that now it's no longer uh, a secular or a Christian province, uh, it's a Muslim, uh, Islam, Muslim province and no law uh, can be enacted uh, which is against the uh, Quran and the Sunnah. And I, Mahathir Muhammad at that time, I, I remember he visited Sabah and he made a very interesting statement. He said, isn't that wonderful that you can be a, a Chinese, you can be a, a Filipino, you can be Indonesian, and you can still be Malaysian as long as you are Muslim. Whereas the local people who are Christians, would be living there for generations, are not given citizenship. But if uh, they convert to Islam, then they will be given but if they move from even from overseas, and they are Muslims, they will, they will be given uh, citizenship. One of the things that is uh, now thorn in, on, on their side is the province of Sarawak, which is still is majority Christian, uh, but they are very, very aggressively pursuing that to change that, uh, those demographics. If there are any government jobs, they will be given to people from the peninsula of Malaysia, Western Malaysia, uh, and to go there and work. Uh, and uh, so that the 
uh, the, the, the moment the Muslim population will reach closer to 40%, then we are likely to lose uh, the Christian identity of that province as well. But there's another issue uh, in Malaysia that I, I would like to quickly highlight, is, is the issue that a uh, number of years ago, uh, there were the Christian pastor called Raymond Ko that disappeared. And when he was kidnapped, uh, the government took the line that we don't know who did that. It must be some non-state actor. But the family went with the car, you know, he, he was taken. So the number of houses they went to in that street and took uh, uh, some video evidence. People were making those small videos from their, uh, from their cell phones. And they put, put it all together. And it clearly shows uh, the kind of vehicles that came, the people who came out, who dragged him, stopped his car, took him away. It seemed like that uh, it's very likely that it was uh, Malaysian government was involved. Uh, not just him, but the four other people that disappeared at the same time soon after. Uh, a guy called Joshua, again a Muslim convert to Christianity, his wife, and there was another uh, couple, uh, also Muslim converts, and their dead bodies are still not found. Uh, most people believe that they have been martyred, but the Malaysian government is neither acknowledging nor denying and there's no inquiry reports being released either. Uh, so that's, um, that's a really uh, painful situation for, for local Christians, especially for the family of uh, Reverend Raymond Ko, uh, that we, most of, many of us within release, we know them very well, uh, had the privilege of uh, meeting them and encouraging them. So that's another, another issue I think that needs to be resolved. And until that's resolved, uh, it will uh, not, be, uh, not be mentioned. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, do, uh, have I uh, run out of time, Laura? Okay, I've been just been told that my time is up, so thank you so much. Uh, I, 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 I think that those two issues of Brunei and uh, Malaysia, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you, God bless you. Thank you, Asif. We do actually have a time for some questions, um, so kind of, if you're happy to leave that, has anybody got any questions they'd like to ask of our speakers? I think you've got a mic. No. <laughs> and so, yes, we, we sort of built in a little bit of time for, for any questions. I think we've got a couple of roving mics, have we, at the back? Um, so if anybody's got any uh, questions of our main speakers, ah, there it is, there's a roving mic at the front. <laughs> Anybody any questions of our speakers today? Is it working? Oh, yes, I heard something okay. Anybody any, any particular issues related to the countries that have been mentioned? Don't worry. We have to speak loudly and I'll perhaps repeat the question. Doesn't matter if we haven't. We're going to stumble into silence perhaps. Yes. In China, the printing press. Amity. Yeah, Amity um, Press, that prints the, the, the Bible and so on. Have the government left them alone? Are they still able to operate as they have been doing? So it's a question about the freedom to print Bibles yeah. in China. Bob? Yes, uh, so Amity Press has claimed they have actually printed 
uh, more Bibles uh, distributed uh, to the world than any Bible prints. Uh, I mean, public, you know, publishing companies. Yet, when you ask them whether the Bible is allowed to be in any public bookstore, it is still a no, and it's illegal. You mean in today's China? If you put any copy of the Bible in a public bookstore, it's uh, declared illegal. And I actually China wanted to do some like uh, propaganda uh, campaign some years ago by putting so-called Bible exhibition in the UK, in the US. So I went there one time in, in Dallas. So I asked them this question. I said, well, you printed, you know, you're doing Bible exhibition. Why, you know, is it, why do you not allow the Bibles to be sold in any public bookstore? They said, oh, because the copyright issues. All of a sudden, <laughs> the Communist Party start respecting copyright. <laughs> <laughs> So that is uh, the reality, and now actually, actually the, uh, we, we receive stories, credible stories, some pastors were arrested and now waiting for up to maybe 10, 15 years imprisonment for simply purchasing the Bible from the empty press. And they traced them and uh, they are now being accused of uh, uh, illegal business management. At least the six Christians um, are facing the charges right now. Thanks so much, Bob. Anybody else? Any questions? Yeah, do you think we are praying the right prayers? Because the situation has not been resolved, has it? So, Which can we pray the right prayers? Can we pray for what? You're talking generally now. For generally, for everybody that's persecuted. Because in the Bible, we've got precedents where. You know, you pray, you pray for the leaders, for them to be saved, to have their Damascus Road encounter, and then change their laws, and the country has a, is open to the gospel. Um, you know, I'm asking that question. Gosh, I'm not sure how you begin to answer that one. So I'm looking at Eric. <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we in the West? I mean, I suppose what the question is asking, Eric, is, is do we in the West know what we should be praying for? I mean, you spoke about the way in which North Koreans say, hey, we pray for you. It's perhaps along those lines. You know, if you was in a church in the UK, what would you say to them in terms of, of how they should yeah, pray? Sure, sure, yeah. Just one note. Uh, it's interesting if you uh, haven't yet read the book Torture for Christ by the founder of Voice of the Martyrs Worldwide, Pastor Richard Wormbrandt. He notes that the second request that Christians from persecuted countries ask for is they say, pray for us. The first request, though, by persecuted Christians is they say, live like us. That is the first request. So what does it mean to live like persecuted Christians? It means to be aware that the offer of forgiveness, that is, or the proclamation of forgiveness, the, the, the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, which is at root in the gospel message, is always offered to those who are opposed to God. Just by definition, I mean, it's, it's, so it's dangerous business, this proclamation of the gospel. So I think we've, when, when we pray, unfortunately, we start with an unbiblical premise, which is, is that the, the, the normal state of affairs is that Christians should not be molested or face difficulties for their faith. When in truth, 
What the New Testament describes is that Christians can expect to face constant opposition. However, it's important to remember biblically that persecution doesn't come first. Persecution is always the response to faithful witness. So when we travel, and um, people say to us, this is a popular question, people ask us, they say, do you, do you think we'll face persecution in this country? And I say, well, are you facing it now? And they say, no. And then I say, well, you don't have to worry about it. And they say, oh, thank God. <laughs> then they walk away, and they stop, and they turn around and say, well, how would you know? And I say, well, because biblically, uh, faithful witness comes first. And so faithful witness, uh, which happens to the sword of God's word, the world can only respond in one of two ways. One is surrender. That's what we did. The word puts to death and brings us to new life. Or we resist that, and that is what the Bible calls persecution. That is, it's the world's rejection of the word of God. So that is the normal state of affairs for Christians, is that we're living in the spot where the proclamation of the gospel always yields two responses. One is surrender. The other is self-defense. The world's self-defense is what we call persecution. So I do think that we're praying wrongly when what we pray for is for Christians to be delivered from persecution, because it implies that persecution is the, um, the action rather than the reaction. Does that make sense? In other words, persecution is that the world doesn't have the initiative. The world doesn't take the initiative to persecute us. Persecution is always the world's response to the proclamation of the message. So what I believe we should pray for is to, that Christians be equipped for faithful witness in every circumstance. And that, by the way, was what, when we talked to the, the first underground North Korean Christian brother, I said, well, you know, okay, if we're praying for you the wrong way, how can we pray the right way? And he said, pray that the Lord will find us each faithful where he places mm. us to mm. make a faithful witness. Mm. And so I think that that is the fundamental thing that we should pray for, that, that wherever Christians are, that we be equipped to make a faithful witness, to offer not our own wisdom, not our own forgiveness, but for the forgiveness of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ which produces two responses to the world. One is that people are put to death and brought to new life, or that they resist and they engage in this futile behavior of self-defense, which is what is called persecution. So praying for endurance in the midst of suffering is mm. biblical. Mm. Right? Perseverance, mm. Perseverance mm. is biblical. Um, so I think um, uh, all of those things are really where our prayers should be focused. Uh, we definitely shouldn't pray from us to them, meaning as, as though our state were normal. You know, our state is very peculiar, actually, right? Um, but the, the, their state is the normal one, which is the, the faithful witness of the gospel, which produces the self-defense on the part of the world called persecution. So we pray for their faithful witness. We pray for their endurance in the midst of it. We pray for them to... Uh, that, 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 that the, the sufferings produce um, the fruit um, that the word says that it will. But we don't pray for them to be delivered from it. I mean, I, I think, that, and again, that's, that's part of, I, I guess, a characteristic of Voice of the Martyrs worldwide is, is that we don't pray for people to be removed from settings of persecution. We pray for them to be equipped to respond biblically in the midst of those settings. Eric, yes, um, I think we are out of time, unfortunately. Is well, yeah, okay. It depends uh, if it's a short question. Yeah. I hope so. Did the face of persecution change uh, as a result of pandemic? Because churches were closed, uh, there weren't any larger gatherings. Did it have an effect in persecution? Has it changed physically? 
Okay, so I think I'm going to ask for a quick-fire response from all three of you in the different contexts. So we'll, we'll start with Eric and just work along. So what, what effect did it have? Um, you know, in, in Korea, where South Korea, we have 10 of the 11 largest churches in the world. They were brought to their knees by the pandemic. Interestingly, the number of Bibles that we receive requests for from, from North Korea doubled every year of the pandemic. Uh, why? Because uh, in North Korea, house-to-house searches were suspended during the pandemic. Mm. And so it gave the opportunity for North Korean Christians to move uh, materials through their homes that they otherwise wouldn't have. So I think that, interestingly, um, there wasn't a uniform response on the, on the part of the church around the world. I think that in some uh, so-called free countries, uh, the church really was uh, struggled to respond to the pandemic. But in the experience of North Korea, it, it was a time of... Um, of great opportunity for for the sharing of the gospel, so I think I think the church took the offensive in a way that uh, was unparalleled among um, uh, other church bodies that we've seen. Um, certainly, the impact is uh, pretty obvious. Uh, of course, uh, the lockdown, right? Uh, the mentality of lockdown. Um, I one thing, of course, uh, inside China, even the government sanctioned churches were in order to. Uh, totally shut down, and now you have to kind of go through a political process in order to reopen. Uh, by you know, each of the government sanctioned church pastors have to be re-examined, like re-licensed in the face of uh, three Communist Party officials. Their first job before they can be re-licensed or reopen is to uh, express the total dedication. Uh, to Chinese Communist Party dictator Xi Jinping. So that's the, the real test. I think uh, for the, those of us in the West, um, it really now, the three years of CCP virus, uh, really uh, come to our shore, make the persecution, I think, make our Christian life more uh, normal. Right? Right. Uh, you're facing you know, pastors in you know, John MacArthur and uh, the pastor in Canada, they're facing exactly the same as the police really the church. The, the dictator, you know, in the form of governor cities, you know, uh, or mayors, uh, they would demand not only when or where you worship, but how you worship. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, I think, uh, really put Christians in the West in a good testing time. Mm-hmm. That's how, I think, uh, maybe more normal now. Yeah. Is there anything to add briefly from your countries? Of- yeah, the countries where uh, uh, I'm operating, which is mostly Muslim majority countries, uh, temporarily we sometimes have to move people outside to protect them. And the visas, the flights, and all that, everything came to a grinding halt. And it was very, very hard to help some of those in life threatening situations. So that did, did uh, adversely uh, affect the Middle so much for you. Well, I think we are just about out of time, so I'm going to invite Sarah to come and close our meeting and to close in prayer. Thank you very much for your attendance. So just a closing prayer together. Father God, Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. He taught us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We confess that we find it very hard to do, and yet we're surrounded by brothers and sisters across the world who, in your strength, 
prove that this is possible on a daily basis and can even be done with joy. We thank you for them and we continue to pray that you would strengthen and equip them for you. We thank you for our brothers Bob and Eric and Asif and for their words today and for the encouragement that they've given us that your kingdom come and that it is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that transforms even in the state of persecution, in fact more so. We ask you to bless and protect them as individuals and continue to prosper their ministries. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us. And please do read the magazine. It's got even more encouraging stories of forgiveness in the face of persecution. Um, and I think if you've signed up, then you hopefully will get some more information from us as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.